have a Bible, let's uh, turn to Psalm 53. It's also printed in the uh, the bulletin, and um, you can find it on any number of devices. We'll wait for this plane to go over. In Romans chapter 3, we looked at Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 5 in our, assur- our confession of sin and assurance. Um, in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, uh, there's no one righteous. No, not one. It's a verse that I memorized in college. Part of probably many of you saw those spiritual, those uh, tracks of uh, summary of the gospel. It was a, a central verse in that, or maybe you've been exposed to evangelism techniques like the the Roman road or the Romans road that walks through the book of Romans and highlights these these verses there's no one righteous no not one and Paul Paul is looking back to Psalm 53 when he does this actually Paul's looking back to Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 the two psalms if you want to look at both of them are almost identical in fact most People, when they commentate or even preach through the Psalms, a lot of times they'll just preach these as a single Psalm. But they're, they're almost identical, but not quite identical. And one of the things I want to look at today is a little bit of the difference between these two Psalms, because it's, it's interesting the context. Remember that part of the reason for studying the Psalms is to understand the context in which we can use them, we should use them ourselves in applying to situations in our own lives. In the context, just by the changing of one or two verses, one verse in one psalm, two verses in another, changes the context in which uh, David wrote and used these psalms, and also in which we can write and use these psalms. Let's read the context that the Apostle Paul was considering when he quoted, No one is righteous, no, not one. It says, to the choir master, according to Mahalath, a maskal of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. 
let Israel be glad. Grass withers and the flower falls, God's word tells us, but his word stands forever, will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, will you open our eyes to see and our our hearts to understand and and, uh, our minds to understand and to internalize these words of your truth. May they equip us, transform us, and empower us to live uh, for you and by your strength. We ask in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. The Psalms are the hymn book written by God. The Psalms are also like a medicine that can be applied in certain situations in certain places. To apply the Psalms well, we need to know the Psalms. We need to be familiar with them. How many of the Psalms do you know by heart or can you reference? You're driving down the road and you see some situation and you think, that reminds me of this Psalm. Or you're facing some difficulty in life, some challenge that seems insurmountable. And you say, that reminds me of this psalm. This problem that somebody else faced before me and they trusted in God. This psalm, Psalm 53 and Psalm 14, is a psalm like that. It's a psalm of salvation, of deliverance, of God's promise to His people, of the hope that those of us who trust in God who have been called and named as part of God's family, when we hear the word Israel, like in verse 6, salvation for Israel, we should identify ourselves as part of the family of Israel. Paul, in another place, calls the church the Israel of God. Israel is another name for Jacob. We looked at a couple weeks ago. Jacob was the patriarch, the father of the Jewish people. Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob and his family would become the nation of Israel. God calls Jacob Israel. Oh, that salvation for God's people, his family, his church, Jacob, Israel, the Israel of God, his church, would come from where? From the strength of our military from the weapons we own and carry in our home, from our intellect or academic achievements, from our earning potential, our bank accounts, from our political leaders, government leaders, from medical professionals, from the quality of our friends or the people we surround ourselves by. What are the places that we hope salvation will come out of for us? What are the places that we look to with a false sense of trust and security that salvation will come for? This psalm redirects our gaze 
as David did, to say, oh, that salvation would come out of, out of Zion. That is the city of God. Named Jerusalem, the city where God's temple was built, where kings ruled from in Israel, where David himself lived and then was exiled from by Saul and then came back to and then was exiled again when one of his own sons pursued him. We've looked at how these psalms emanate, originate out of the very real difficulties that David saw and experienced, but how David looks back to that place, Jerusalem, and the promise that God would bring his salvation from that place, Zion, and he finds hope. and trust. And he needs to remind himself as well as his audience, his listeners, his people, the people of the kingdom, as well as all of us, the people of God's kingdom, that that salvation comes from Zion. On this side of the cross, we can look and see that salvation has come through Jesus who died on that cross in Jerusalem and has brought salvation to the ends of the earth. In a spiritual sense, we don't look to the physical place even so much as we look to God bringing that out of the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. The spiritual Israel of God is the family of God, the church, not born through physical generation, but born out of spiritual regeneration out of spiritual regeneration. And that salvation that has come to us has come from Zion. Now with that ending in mind, sometimes it's helpful to start with the end, with that ending in mind, we can go back to the beginning and look at the the ways that David unfolds this argument for salvation, this psalm for salvation. And again, begins with this statement, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, when we think of the term fool or foolishness, it's generally something we connect with the intellect. Somebody who's not very smart. But when the scriptures use this term fool, it refers to something that's more generally our moral orientation or or specifically to this term, those who are spiritually arrogant. Earlier we read from Romans chapter 1. That explains, Paul's explaining, all of creation. You can just look around and people know, have a general sense that there is a God. Even in an age where the majority of people in our Western culture reject the, 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 the scriptures and reject the teaching of the Bible and of Christianity, you still ask, and the, the majority of people, the vast majority of people, I think at least 75%, maybe even more than 90% of people still will say there is a God. They may disagree on who that God is, how He's revealed Himself, what he instructs us to do, how engaged he is in a teaching. But, but most people look around and they still acknowledge, they say there is a God. But, we read this earlier in Romans 1, 
most people suppress that truth. They push it down. It's an inconvenient truth or an inconvenient fact. It's an inconvenient truth, an inconvenient fact. It's an inconvenient obstruction to some, if not most, of our human desires. For what do we seek as human beings? We seek security. We seek pleasure. We seek companionship. We may seek other things. Some seek after money toward the end of security or some toward that comfort. Some seek after power for those various things. And the easy road to most of those things is not the road that God has laid out for humanity. It's not the road anyway that the God of the Bible has laid out for most of us. So Paul explains that in very simple terms. He says, we see, we know there is a God, but we suppress that truth so that we can achieve our goals, our ambitions, our selfish ambitions, that is, at the expense of others. Now verse 1, verse 1 of Psalm 53 is sort of an extreme example. The fool says in his heart, the spiritually arrogant one says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. But then after that semicolon, it expands that out to all of humanity. It's sort of an extreme example to open the psalm, get your attention, it's a hook. But then David lays it out. He says, Look, that may be extreme, but there is not one person in all of humanity, there's not one person in all of humanity that truly does good. He goes on to explain that in verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. getting into here is a bit of a theological case argument. There's none who seeks after God. God looks around. It's an it's a anthropomorphic image. Anthropomorphic means a human attribute applied to God. God being uh, looking down from heaven is even other illustrative language. Heaven is not necessarily in a place above us. 
but God is using language through David here. God is using language to help us understand what our condition is as humans. You see, there's none of us who seek after God because going back to that story of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve disobeyed the one simple command God gave them. Don't eat from this one tree. All the other trees you can eat from, but don't eat from this one tree. Of course, what they do? It's the thing that's familiar to all of us. What do we want to do? Don't do that. Why not? I want to do that. And what happens to Adam and Eve after they do that? They run and hide from God. It's the opposite of seeking after God. Because once we do the thing that we know we shouldn't have done, we're ashamed of it. And shame drives us away from another. This is one of the most dangerous things culturally around us right now. By the way, shame... Shame has been used powerfully, mightily, by many in authority in Western civilization and particularly in the church to motivate us toward God. That shame is something that is natural. We feel it. Shame is also something, on the flip side of that, that has been used culturally in Eastern cultures throughout the generations that identifies the, 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 the whole, the benefit of the whole as being the most important. And so shame is used to motivate people toward the good of the whole. It is in part why uh, some of those uh, Eastern cultures have adopted certain political systems more easily than others, but, but, but they're appealing to, to so many people. But shame that drives us away from God is the opposite of what God desires for our lives and the opposite of what He desires for us to do in relationship. Man, these planes are a lot today. see, the gospel enters in, God enters in with his plan of salvation, even into that garden with Adam and Eve, and he goes and finds them. They're not seeking after him, but God goes and finds them. And he asks them some challenging questions. Well, who told you you were naked? What did you do? He knows the answers to these things already, but he's probing their hearts so that they might come back to him. And he pursues them. And this is what God is doing he's in this psalm. He's, he's saying to the people through David, through this psalm, God is looking down, seeing who seeks after God. And the answer, the clear answer that is found is that no one is seeking after God. All of us are acting like Adam and Eve and we're running away from God, pursuing our own pleasures or having failed in those things, ashamed ashamed and unwilling to turn back to God. He repeats at the end of verse 3, there is none who does good, not even one, to emphasize that this is the condition of every single human being. In theological terms, it's called total depravity. 
We have no ability to seek after God on our own terms, by our own strength. We may think we're seeking after God, but here's what's happening when we seek after God, when we turn back to God. God is coming to us and reminding us of who He made us to be. Of who He made us to be. God is coming to call us as believers in Him. Is that the other page? That's their music. God is calling us as believers in Him to remember that when we feel like we're failing Him and running away from Him and hiding from Him in our shame, that He continues to pursue us. That He's the one who's coming to do the work. That He's the one who in our death and our shame pricks our souls, our consciences to come to Him and say, I need need restoration, I need help. What's our response to that? I want to just present two things there on chapter on, on verses one through three two brief points on this and then look at the the outworking in verse four the fool says in his heart there is no god is not referring to those who are believers in god god followers it's referring to atheists now there are both the theoretical atheists The open, overt atheists, those who openly declare those who openly declare there is no God and want to convince everybody else that that is the case as well. That refers to a very small number of people, even still in our culture. More dangerous Insidious are the practical atheists. Those who go around living and acting as if there were no God. This is the vast majority of people in our culture. For nothing in their lives, no consequence, no situation, no difficulty has forced them to ask this question, is there a God? And most importantly, more importantly, if there is a God, who is He? Has He revealed Himself to us? Or how has He revealed Himself to us? And what does that mean for my life and my decisions? Now, if you're in that place right now, and I think most of us, live in some variation of that point, even as followers of Christ, most of the time. Things are going pretty well. I've got enough money coming in that I can pay my bills. The debt collectors at least haven't started collecting yet. Most of us find ourselves in positions of practical atheism, where we're living as if there is no God. 
And if you're in that place, then don't minimize even this point in time right now as you're listening to this. God says in his word multiple times today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart as God's people did in the wilderness. Don't assume that there will be tomorrow. Don't assume that I can live today for my own desires and sometime later in life I can take up religion. Religion is a false notion. The pursuit of religion is an exercise to satisfy our own desires. The question should be for all of us in life, not Am I religious or am I going to be religious? But is there a God? And if there is a God, what should my response be? David says there there is a God. All of us know that. It's plain to us. How has God revealed himself to us? Well, both by his mighty actions, his works in humanity throughout history, recorded in the scriptures, recorded in various other historical texts as well, but even more powerfully recorded and confirmed in his entering into humanity, taking the form of a human, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, becoming human to live, to die, to be raised from the dead for, for our sake. There is no place for functional or practical atheism in life. It's procrastination. It's not wanting to deal with the difficult things in life. By our very nature, we're going to run from it out of shame all the time, every time. But God comes and he seeks us out and he pursues us. Interesting commentary that C.S. Lewis made uh, decades ago in an essay, a speech called God in the Dock. In it, he, he explains how we as human beings have reversed the role of us in God. He says, the ancient man approached God or even the gods, as they might have believed it, as the accused person approaches his judge. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. 
but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. The bench being the judge's seat, the dock being the, uh, the seat of the accused. Lewis goes on to say, it's generally useless to try to combat this attitude as older preachers did by dwelling on sins like drunkenness and unchastity. The modern people is not drunken. As for fornication, contraceptives have made a profound difference. As long as this sin might socially ruin a girl by making her the mother of an illegitimate child, most men recognize the sin against charity uh, which it involved, and their consciences were often troubled by it. Now that it need have no such consequences, it is not, I think, generally felt to be a sin at all. My own experience suggests that if we can awake the conscience of our hearers at all, we must do so in quite different directions. We must talk of conceit, spite, jealousy, cowardice, meanness, etc. He humbly explains and admits that I'm very far from believing that I have found the solution to this problem. But this is a profound statement. First, in our position trying to put God in the dock, of course, we can never do that actually, but we can conceive or, 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 or convince ourselves that we have done so, deceive, deceive ourselves. But, but isn't it fascinating how, how Lewis is speaking of what are the sins that will convict and pierce the heart? The sins of old that we still try to hold on to, they are sins, but they don't prick the conscience as they used to. But the sins of conceit, spite, jealousy, cowardice, meanness, these are things that we can identify that humanity in general still identifies with. God comes down. He is the God who is on the bench. And He seeks after. He looks to find any who understand that, who seek after God, whose consciences are pricked. And he says, no, there's, there's not even one. Now from there, the judgment turns around. And here's where the two Psalms, Psalm 14 and 53, diverge a little bit. It's helpful to have a little bit of context. In Psalm 14, here's what it says in verse 5 there. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And then in Psalm 53, it's just verse 5 here. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Both of those are preceded in verse 4 by an explanation of those evildoers. It describes evildoers as those who eat other people's flesh. They devour them like eating bread. They have no care that they've 
taken from another person. In this first Psalm, Psalm 14, David is concerned for how the people as a whole, both Gentiles outside of the kingdom and those in power inside the kingdom are treating the poor. And he says, particularly for those poor, God is your salvation. Implicitly, oh, that I was a king that cared so much for my poor that you would be cared for by this kingdom and know the salvation of the Lord. Listen, a lot of debates are going on right now. Is Marxism or capitalism the right solution to all of our problems? And the answer is an astounding, neither solution politically, economically, is a solution to our problems. The only solution to our problems has to involve God giving people in leadership and people in community with others compassion, concern, generosity, for those who find themselves in the most vulnerable places in our society. Capitalism fails. Fails if it is not curtailed by a heart of compassion. A heart for the poor. There is no way for it to succeed. I would stand against it with my whole life if that were the only option. A capitalism without Christ. Without compassion. The dangers of Marxism are opposite and they tend to try to exclude God with the desire of leveling the playing field for everybody. But of course the result from that is the same thing. The absence of compassion. The pursuit of power. But Psalm 53 goes on and David takes the same words. By the way, it's not just a a different variation. David takes the same psalm and he applies it to a little bit different situation. And he says this is also an equally appropriate song to record in the Psalter. There are two psalms. He says in verse 5 there, There they are in great terror where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. And here he's speaking about a military force outside of Jerusalem that surrounded the city that overwhelms them, and the people in Jerusalem are gripped with fear. Because they're measuring their capacity for military victory based on the number of soldiers, the strength of the walls, and not on the power of God. And David's lamenting that the people have fallen into such a place that they've forgotten where their salvation comes from. Where salvation comes from the power of God who has destroyed massive armies without a single human being being involved in the conflict. And he's drawing the people's attention back to this one great truth that we started on. And that is salvation doesn't come from the size of the walls or the military strength of the people of Israel. Salvation comes from God Himself. Salvation comes out of Zion. Salvation comes out of the promise that God has made 
to humanity that where Adam sinned and hid in shame, Jesus Christ has come to rescue us from the power of that sin, from the power of death, and that even if an army conquers, it cannot take the hope, the promise of eternal life in Christ Jesus. It gives us power to enter into fights on behalf of those who are poor, even if we feel like it's a losing cause. It gives us power to break free of pragmatic religion or pragmatic atheism. It gives us power to engage life in relationship with God, in relationship with other, without fear. It gives us power to love the people who are closest to us and to keep going back to them with love and to extend forgiveness when we feel like we have no forgiveness to extend. Oh, that salvation for the Israel of God, the church, would truly come out of the church again. In an election year especially, but all the time, we need to be reminded to bring, to look to the salvation that is preached in the gospel, to make that the salvation that is preached extend out to the world. And that should include our engagement with how our culture Our cities, our nations, treat the poor. It should include how we treat the poor around us, the outcasts in society. Because Jesus has come to us in our poverty. Those who are poor in spirit are the ones who are receptive. The ones who don't say, There is no God. Those who understand that if it wasn't for God, I could do no good. Those who understand that without God, there is no salvation. It's a good place to stop. I hope these two psalms have some more meaning and usefulness for you in your life in the coming days. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are humbled by a psalm such as this. And you remind us of our state of sin and the freedom from shame that you have won for us in Christ Jesus. Father, where others try to continue to press that shame onto us, will you give us strength against those seeking to abuse their power. And where we have failed to care for the poor, the downtrodden, the orphan and the widow, will you remind us of that great call to us. Father, we thank you for how Jesus has come and rescued us. And we pray that we would be that type of salvation carrier, not in ourselves, but in Christ to others. We pray in Jesus' name.